thank you guys very much. Um, it really is a blessing to have um, someone like Stevie who can, as a trustworthy leader and a gifted musician when John's out. He's suffering for Jesus this week in Disney World, and uh, his family every once in a while just pays for everybody to go to Disney World. So um, probably exactly what he needs after, you know, dealing with clowns like us all the time. So he's, um, he's headed, he's down there for another few days, I guess. I actually don't know exactly when he gets back, but, but, but uh, he'll be back soon. But we do thank you very much, Stevie. Thank you for your faithfulness to wherever she went to lead us. There you are. Thank you. So, um, and, and it is appropriate as we're looking at starting into a, a little series here between here and Easter on prophecy. Um, this is one of those things that, that pastors are all the time asked to teach about. Um, the only thing just about more often that we're asked to teach about is just the book of Revelation. Would you teach the book of Revelation? And because and people think they want you to teach the book of Revelation. They don't. They, they think they do. They don't. You, you get about 10 chapters in and they're like, just stop. Go back to Mark, John, anything. Just make it stop. It's, it's, it's so much harder to dig through and, and to really do, do justice to prophetic passages and and that kind of stuff. So my goal is to uh, move into what's called an exegetical, just a, a straight through, see what the word says and let it speak for itself study of, of Matthew 24 and into 25, um, which is kind of Jesus's main teaching on, on things to come. That being said, um, I, I want to lay the groundwork. One of the things we've learned over the years is um, that, that, you know, we, we don't, we don't have that whatever that philosophy is, I don't even know exactly what to call it, that, that, that is called a seeker-friendly situation. Um, too often, that just means, I, th I think, kind of gospel light in some places, and, and sometimes not, maybe not. But it, here's what I do know, is that it's important that we remember that not everyone grew up with flannel graphs in Sunday school when they were little kids. Um, not everyone grew up learning all the songs. Not everyone was in church. And we know that here, we have a number of people who come who are, who are unchurched, sometimes radically so, never been a part of church um, in their life. We have people who have been badly churched. Um, we even have people who have been traumatically churched. And, and so we, we won't always want to take time. And like this Sunday, we're going to go through and kind of lay the groundwork for talking about prophecy. And so um, we'll be kind of all over some scriptures today, working our way to be prepared to jump into Jesus's teaching um, on what is called the Olivet Discourse. Um, all, all, most sections of Scripture have some clever name that theologians gave them at some point, or, or, her, or uh, Bible study people, and her, but it's called hermeneutics, the art and science of studying Scripture. We give it shorthands just like every other science does. But, um, but in order to get there, I want us to, to lay this groundwork a little bit, so hopefully you will. Um, this will be good and help you. And in fact, as we were talking about today, what we just sang, the passage from Ezekiel 37 that references dry bones that come alive, is a prophetic passage, and it's really prophetic about God's character. Um, the truth is that, that there's nothing so dead that God can't bring it to life. And, and the truth is we've seen that. If you study the awakenings, even in just the Western world, you will see that, that America has been in situations where the, the, the faith of our nation was probably worse than now. That, that God brought it out of that into a new awakening. And so that's why we pray for an awakening. And as we've talked about before, there is an awakening. The, the sixth great awakening is happening right now in the world. It's just not happening here. Um, thousands and thousands every day, every week, tens of thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. It's just happening in the Asian world uh, more than here. And, and so it's, it's a, we celebrate that and we rejoice in that and we look forward to seeing all of the, 
Asian missionaries that come to America over the next few generations because um, we're going to need them. We're going to need their help. But so, so be, be proud and excited that God, is, God isn't waiting on us to work. He's working, and, and Lord willing, he will also bring an awakening here, which would be fantastic. Um, there's nothing, and that's the picture that he gives Ezekiel of his people um, in a valley full of just dead, dry, not just dead, but very dead, dry, bones, the bones have nothing left, and, and he, bring, he gives them new life and new flesh, and, and he's always going to bring a remnant of his people. So it's a, it's a really neat, what we we're just singing about fits in uh, very well. I'm sure it's random coincidence. I'm sure just, no, it's not. She knew what we were talking about. So, um, so we don't want to assume that. <laughs> and then here's the only thing that may be worse if you didn't grow up in church at all and so don't have really much of a concept for biblical prophecy. Usually the only thing that's worse than that is if you did grow up in church and so you have tons of misconceptions about biblical prophecy um, like I did. I, I grew up with th- thinking that there were actually graphs drawn in the Bible. Like I, I assumed that somewhere in the book of Revelation was this little graph that said like here's the rapture and, and then there's this seven years and then halfway in between. And, and like I just assumed John had drawn that out because that's how it was taught in the church I grew up in was like this is the only way to think about this. It was pretty stunning to run into people who had forgotten more about the Bible than I will ever know in seminary who disagreed on some of those things. I mean honestly straight up painful. Like I've talked about being in Israel and being introduced that a manger was made out of stone, a first century manger was made out of stone, that level of cognitive dissonance pain of like, no, mangers are wood, and they have hay and a little cross piece, and they're about this tall, and they have a plastic baby in them. That's what a manger is. Like, don't tell me, but first century mangers in Israel are made out of, of, of stone, not wood. And so that was shocking. The same thing, like, to have a seminary professor say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't think we know when this is. And I'm like, oh, yes, we do. It's right, and I'm going to turn to the graph. Anyway, <laughs> it's not there. By the way, the graph's not, not there. So here's one misconception. One misconception is that prophecy is about the future. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's not always about the future. Um, the, the Greek word that we reference really is, it's the same word, prophecy, prophetes. And by the way, remember I'm an East Texan, so I always mispronounce Greek words, but it's close enough for most of you. The, um, uh, it, it may or may not be about the future. To, to pro, to go before, femi, to declare or to spring, or to uh, shine. Those are the ideas. It's, it's really just someone who speaks forth. Someone who speaks, to, to, be, to prophesy is to speak the mind of God on something. And so that happens all through Scripture. In the, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when someone prophesies, sometimes it's about the future, and those become the most famous ones. So those are the ones that we're most excited about, but because we're all curious about the future, but... The truth is that's, that's not always what it's about. And even more so, um, it, is, it may not be about our future, um, even if it was in the future of the person speaking it. So I'm going to show you some examples of these that, that you may really enjoy. Then there's also one type that is not only in our future, but is in truly in the future. So whenever you live, certain things in prophecy are what are called eschatological there you go. Eschatological. That's a, that's, that's, it just means in, in, in times. It, it's going to happen at the very end. Um, like Harry Potter's little, what, what, are the, what are the little golden, the golden snitch, snitch that they, I open at the, nobody. Yeah, see, Baptist crowds. Anyway, so, um, anyway. No, no, more, no more comments about that. We'll just move right along. The, um, uh, so it may be in someone's future. It may, not be, it may have been in someone's future. It may not be yours. 
Um, there's quite a few prophecies. For example, Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecies. In fact, the majority of, of what we see fulfilled, we see Jesus constantly fulfilling Scripture. Sometimes what's, what's intriguing sometimes is on purpose. Like, he knows what the prophecy was, and then he goes out of his way to fulfill that prophecy. It doesn't just, like, randomly surprise him. Oh, look, I fulfilled a prophecy. He knows the prophecies, and he's going to go out of his way and make sure and fulfill all these prophecies. That wasn't the case at first. Some of them were done um, without his permission. For example, um, I've often thought, and this is total supposition, so please forgive me if this is, um, bugs you, but I've often wondered if, if part of what Jesus was talking about in the temple with the, the religious leaders when he was 12 if they weren't discussing the Messiah, and maybe that's even when Jesus kind of started putting the pieces together. Again, I'm just totally guessing. I have no idea. But I've always imagined Jesus sitting around with these, these, these old Pharisees and, and teachers of the law and that kind of stuff as he is 12 and discussing it with them. And he knows it backwards and forwards. And, one, and they're arguing about who the Messiah is going to be. And one of them says like, hey, he's, you know, no one has any respect for this guy. He's going to be like a Nazarene. And, and, and we don't have an Old Testament prophecy that says he will be called a Nazarene. And um, even though Matthew says, as the prophets have said, he will be called. A... So it may just be that Nazarene is an insult. Um, in fact, that's one of the more likely interpretations, that Nazarene was an insult. Can anything good come from Nazareth, as one of the apostles said? But it, it may be that simple. Or it may be that the root word, Nazar, is, is shoot. And, we talk, and the Bible talks about him being like a shoot. Um, but uh, out of like a, a plant, a shoot, or, a, or a, that kind of thing. So maybe any of that. But so you imagine that, that them saying like, well, you know the old prophets, or we just don't have that prophet maybe in our Bible, but you know the old prophets said he'd be a Nazarene. And Jesus is going like, huh, that's cool because I'm from Nazareth. And I wonder if I'll know him. And that'd be nice. And then going like, no, 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 he's not going to be from Nazareth. He's going to be from Bethlehem. Very clear in the Bible that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come from Bethlehem. And Jesus goes, um, hmm, I was born in Bethlehem, even though I live in Nazareth. That's that's pretty amazing. Like, no, no, he's going to come out of Egypt. So it's very clearly, um, he's going to, that's, that's uh, by the way, those Micah 5.2, Bethlehem will be the birthplace. Um, Hosea 1.1, I'll call my son out of Egypt. And can you imagine Jesus at that point going like, wait, wait a minute. I, my family went to Egypt for the, after I was about two, and I was, I don't know. Maybe that's when he put all the pieces together. Maybe he had known from birth. Maybe he didn't know until he was 30. But at that moment, by the way, that's the story you remember when, when Jesus' parents come and say, didn't you know your father and I would be worried about you? And Jesus says, didn't you know I needed to be doing my father's business? And he doesn't mean Joseph. Um, so it's, that's, that's pretty, anyway, who knows? But there's all types of prophecies. I mean, they're, they're, they're just a whole list. These are up here on the screen. These are the examples of things spoken about Jesus in some cases hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. Go ahead and go to the next ones. The titles that he would have all prophesied before he was born. Keep going. More things all said about him before that he came into existence on earth, before he came to man. It's pretty amazing the dozens, some people say hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. It becomes absurd to, to try to say like, man, just coincidence. It really does. It becomes kind of a, an, an absurdity to say that. So I'm going to give you a couple of really good ones, of really fun prophecies that were in the future of the person who spoke them, but are in our past, which allows us to evaluate them. And by the way, if you know any prophets, anybody who claims the title prophet, um, and I don't mean the gifting of prophecy, that's different. And I don't even mean like someone who might prophesy, that's different. I mean, if you know someone who says, I am a prophet, I carry the office of prophet, Ezekiel, Isaiah, me, if they're like anyone who does that. Here's what you do. It's very easy. 
you ask them to predict something. Tell me what God says is going to happen in regards to anything you pick it. And then you see whether they were right. And if they were right, then you also can call them a prophet. And if they're wrong, you stone them to death. That's, that's the straight up, that's the only, it is a very much so pass-fail thing in Scripture. Um, I, I've always thought like anyone on the, the TV people who claim to be a prophet, I'm like, I, I don't know if they've read the job description. Aside from the fact that, uh, that if, you, if you mess, the severance package is awful. I mean, that's, that's like, first of all, that's one. Second, it may mean God asks you to lie on your right side for three years or to marry a prostitute or to go tell a whole group of people how much God intends to judge them and, oh, by the way, they're not going to listen to you like Isaiah's job, Isaiah's job description was. I mean, these are, these are not happy people, the prophets as a whole. They're not excited. They don't get new jet planes. They get to do awful things most of their life until someone executes them. So... Anyway, I don't, you don't see a lot of that going on with the prophets anymore. But speaking of prophets, so in Isaiah, in 44 and 40, chapters 44 and 45 of Isaiah, this is a pretty cool one. There's a leader named Koresh in the, in the Hebrew. His name is Koresh. And yes, I'm sure David Koresh from Waco found out about that somehow. But <laughs> the name means the son. Um, he would, it's declared in Isaiah that he would defeat the Babylonians and the Egyptians, which, of course, at the time that Isaiah is writing this, no one is ever going to defeat the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Just forget about it. This is a, this is a, a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. But he did so. It just so ha- but he was not born for 150 years after the prophecy was made. So Isaiah declares this guy. The, the English version of the Hebrew word Koresh is Cyrus. So if you've done any history, King Cyrus is the one who came and conquered these people. Cyrus was named by Isaiah 150 years before there was a Cyrus. That's pretty impressive when you get the name right 150 years in advance or so. Cyrus the Great, who, by the way, this may or may not come as a surprise to you, conquered the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Um, so here's the, here's the thing. Maybe you grew up, maybe part of the misconception for you is you grew up like I did trying with people trying to impress you about this guy named Nostradamus. Y'all remember Nostradamus? Does anyone even talk about him anymore? Dude, he was hot stuff for a while, wasn't he? Um, anybody? I mean, like, I'm curious. Is, am I just like wasting? Okay, no, there's a few of us, a few of us who, okay. So, so Nostradamus was this dude who lived in the 1500s and wrote a bunch of clever little kind of quatrain statements mostly in very general terms. And he's got a lot of followers. Now, so does everybody else on the internet nowadays. I mean, if you, if you search him on the, on the internet, of course, I mean, that doesn't make you special anymore. But um, So he used a mixture of all kinds of stuff. Let me just give you a couple of fun ones so that you'll see the difference between biblical prophecy and some guy saying stuff that later people make fit. So here's one of the, one of the ones he's most famous for. Um, in the year 1999, seven months from the... From the sky will come the great king of terror to resuscitate the great king of the Mongols before and after Mars reigns by good luck. Okay? So I'm sure all of it, okay, stop and, and think about 1999, what obviously happens that fits this. And it was the, the death of John F. and Carolyn Kennedy in an airplane. So obviously, see the sky comes the great, I mean, uh, there's an airplane yeah, see, I don't see it either. I have no, I cannot, I cannot make that work at all. There is the sky as mentioned, but this is one of their big ones to prove that Nostradamus was predicting things, you know, from, from, the, year, from the 1500s. Um, how about this one? This, okay, this one will, this, okay, this one will do it though. From the human flock, nine will be sent away. Separated from judgment and counsel, their fate will be sealed on departure. Kappa, Thida, Lambda, the banished, dead heir. 
Anybody? Supreme Court. <laughs> nah, that actually works better than the, um, than the one they go with. That's, and see, the, the nine, right? You thought like nine, super, there you go. So um, interestingly, this was allegedly the space shuttle Challenger. Um, the people sent away, doomed on a spaceship with an O-ring that was built by a company that has the letter K, T, and L in the name of their company. Um, the fact that it was seven people who were on the Space Shuttle Challenger doesn't seem to dissuade the big fans of Nostradamus. But anyway, this is, this is when you hear prophecy, you've got to be careful because you've, you've got to, and then, although this isn't popular right now that much, but it will come back, is, is the, the future tellers and the, um, remember the Psychic Friends Network? And, and I mean, that's, that kind of stuff, it always comes back. It's kind of like vampires and werewolves and stuff. Like, they go out of style, and they come back, and they go out of style. And, they, and so, and there's nothing creative. This, they, that, that, that whole movement will come back, I'm sure. The age of Aquarius will return. Um, and so, when it does, just be aware of the fact that, that it's, it's, this is the best they have, is Nostradamus. And this is, this is the best. It, it doesn't get much better. As a psychologist, I will tell you, most of what they do is, is pretty simple tricks, and it's not very hard to do. But, you, and you, okay, anybody? Psychic Friends Network? You do remember the Psychic Friends Network? Do you know they went out of business? They had to declare bankruptcy. Do you want to know why? This was important to me at a time when I was a debunker fan, like I loved that stuff. Bad stock investments. <laughs> they literally made bad stock investments, lost all their money, and went out of business. And I always thought, like... There's some poetic justice there, isn't there? Like, really? <laughs> so much for psychic. The, um, <clears throat> I always wanted to call and be like, and then go, well, tell us your name. Like, no, 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 you tell me my name. So, uh, nowadays they could. They'd look at their photo, their ID, their phone ID. But, so here's one of the ones that's very famous from the Bible. So I want you to see the difference between this like, oh, look, there's random words kind of thrown together and we make them fit versus Isaiah naming King Cyrus as the man who would defeat the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and he did. Um, how about this one? In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great besieged a city called Tyre, T-Y-R-E. So here's, here's what Tyre looked like. But in your mind, erase that little brown line connecting Tyre from old Tyre. Because that wasn't there at the time. That literally, the main city of Tyre, the royal city of Tyre, was on an island off of the coast. It was a great trading city that in the past had given aid to coastal cities that had resisted Alexander. And Alexander did not think that was nice of them. So he brought a big army to defeat them. <clears throat> the, the city had been besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, as the Bible predicted um, would happen. And so it, there, is, there is challenge here, by the way. When you're reading Old Testament prophecy, sometimes it, there's a challenge in, in piecing the pieces together, and you do have to work through interpretation. We've talked about that some. But, the, but the, the Babylonians were not able to totally defeat it, largely because of this. There was this big gap. The people just went over under the royal part of the city with the great walls and on an island, and the, the Babylonians weren't able to get to them. But the sieges kind of continued off and on for the next few hundred years, Here's what, here's what Ezekiel writes about them, working down through the prophecy. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, your stones and timbers and soil they will cast into the midst of the waters. That's pretty specific. Your stones and timbers and soil they will cast into the midst of the waters. Where that little bridge comes from is the fact that Alexander, so the people all did exactly what they'd always done in the past. They'd went over to their island and, and, and fortified themselves. And Alexander, who was not the type of person to be stopped by things like an ocean, said, um, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're just going to tear down the entire city of old Tyre, and we're going to build ourselves a land bridge 
And so he spent a while tearing down piece by piece, stone by stone, timber by timber, the city of Tyre, and building a bridge over to the royal city, and then marched his army across and destroyed Tyre. By throwing, what was the quote? By throwing stones and timbers and soil into the sea. That's, that's pretty specific. You, you don't have to guess it like, maybe those are the space shuttle challenger. No, this is about somebody taking down every stone. And Jesus is going to do this. When we go into Matthew 24, Jesus is going to make some very specific statements that at the time seemed ridiculous to the people who were hearing him. When he says things like, not one stone will lie on top of another stone on the top of this temple mount. Okay, I mean, exaggeration. Some Maybe someday someone will. Those of you who are going to go with us in June to Israel, and there are a couple of spots left if you'd like to go, we will stand on the stones thrown down, every single stone on the temple mount tossed down off of the temple mount. Stone by stone, every one of them. It's, it's stunning and shocking to see this. Daniel was famous for his prophecy um, about Alexander and others. So in Daniel 2.31, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and exceedingly bright, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening, and the head of the image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So the Bible sets this prophecy that, that of Nebuchadnezzar's dream by Daniel in about 600 B.C., and, and what you have is very clearly, you have the Babylonian culture. In fact, this goes forward. The, the, the explanation is there. There will be these great cultures. And the Babylonian culture is the great one and the one he's talking to. And then the silver culture, the Medo-Persians, and the Greek empire, the bronze, and the Romans of iron. And then there would never be, according to Daniel, there's not another great world unifying culture. There's just this iron and clay kind of mixed together, which sounds like stuff that's not as awesome or, or mixed in with the Roman aspect of things. And if that doesn't describe our world today, I don't know what does. It's a, it's a credible picture. Even skeptics, this blew me away, this, even, the, even like the totally anti-Christian, anti-biblical skeptics place this at about 200 BC being written, which still predates the Roman Empire, still predates a, a, a decent amount of what's described in this you're still stuck, even if you're a total skeptic, you're still stuck with the fact that Daniel, through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, clearly prophesied about great cultures that were going to come. It's significant. These are not in our future. Now, by the way, the end of it, when there's one final great culture that smashes all the others, that, that one, probably. So, we grew up with, the, the, sometimes, Whatever you were taught, we grow up with not understanding that also Bible prophecy sometimes is about the present of the time the person is writing and also about the future. So we sometimes get both. Jesus, a lot of the, the things about Jesus, that was the case. Um, for example, we're going to talk about Jesus saying um, that armies are going to besiege Jerusalem. Jesus is going to give that warning. And when you see armies besieging Jerusalem, you need to get out of Jerusalem. That's what he's going to tell them. From the time of Jesus, Jerusalem has been besieged in A.D. 70. A.D. 614, 637, 1099, 1187, 1244, 1917, and 1948. And, and by the way, in all of those, if you were a citizen in Jerusalem, it was a good idea to get out. But notice that Jesus is ta probably talking specifically about A.D. 70, and yet also about these others, and also about fortification times in Jerusalem that probably are in the future. 
So just because something is fulfilled doesn't mean it's not going to be fulfilled again. That's a, a, a prophecy, philosophy, or mindset that's called birth pangs. Jesus is going to reference that. Birth pangs, meaning, so, so those of you who are ladies who have had babies, the, the birth pangs, the, you have one. Yes, the doctor says, hey, you're going to have a birth pang, right? You're going to have a contraction. And, and then you're going to have another one. And it's going to be kind of like the other one, but worse. And then you're going to have another one, right? I've, I was set in the hospital room for three of these. And there's going to be, and I watched that little monitor. Go climb, 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 climb. We turned it so the ginger couldn't see the monitor. She knew perfectly well when it got high enough. But I was sitting there going like, oh, goodness, here it comes. Here's another one. Here's another one. And then she would go like, wow. And like, yeah, yeah. I saw that come. That's, and it gets, it gets more and more and more. Jesus is going to give comfort, by the way, because just like with a mother, eventually you give birth. And then all of that pain was worth it. And you get pregnant again. So this is this often about the case. So here's an example. Here's a great example of that. Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamenta- lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel, who was the mother of Joseph, represents an entire region of Israel here in Jeremiah's prophecy. The enemies had attacked and defeated the Hebrews time and time again. Her children in the region were either dead or had been sent into exile at this point. She cannot find her children, and she weeps for their loss. That was to, at, at the time Jeremiah was writing this. This was being experienced. But we also, if you've read the Christmas story, what is this reference also? Anybody? No? The killing of the innocent children in Bethlehem. It specifically referenced this passage, which was already being fulfilled at the time it was spoken, and yet is also again fulfilled at the time of Jesus' birth. Do you follow that that's how prophecy works? So we see this repetition, this kind of growing ripples. Make sure you understand some of the basics here of prophecy. Um, okay, it helps us. Here's another misconception. Not only is it... Um, uh, about the future, it's not. But it's meant to help us predict the future. And then in parentheses, and this is what pastors will tell you people are really asking for when they ask you to teach on prophecy is, and it's meant to scare us. So studying revelation or prophecy is the Christian Sunday morning version of going to a horror movie. That's what it's supposed to be, right? Scorpions and fire and death and like, boo, and like horsemen. And, and like, that's kind of, that's what people are wanting is that sense of like, woohoo, it's gonna go good. Like it's a, that, that's that feeling of it's going to jump out and scare you, and it's going to. And, and the problem is, prophecy isn't intended to do that. In fact, it has kind of the opposite intention. I'm going to share with you, um, and, and, and it's kind of the. Um, we, we want to know how much ammo we need to buy and when. That's kind of the, what we want about the prophecy. Do I dig my bunker now, or can I wait a few more years before I dig my bunker and stock it with food and ammo? And it? Not, not that I'm opposed to that. Like, I'm a big fan of, you know. Have a few weeks of food in your, uh, in your home. That's fine. But the, but the idea of, of that that's what we think prophecy is for. Let me show you what prophecy is really for. This is, this is going to be fun, I think. Um, this, this, I think, helps us get what God is intending. Um, any of you who have never gone east from East Texas, this will really, you, you will be perfect for this, okay? So I want you to imagine if you've never been east on I-20 from East Texas. So I'm going to hold, hold off on the pictures for a second. So here, here's what I'm going to tell you. Um, I want you to go to Tuscaloosa, okay? I want you to go to Tuscaloosa. Here's what I want you to do. Get on I-20 and go east. I recommend you take the second exit into Tuscaloosa, okay? Everybody good with that trip? How are you going to feel on that trip if you've never been east? 
No, it's group participation is okay at this point. Like, how are you going to feel on the, on the way? Okay, how far is it, right? Second exit to Tuscaloosa. So you're going to be, you, that's all you know. And you're going to be driving and you're going to suddenly realize your mind has kind of wandered for a few miles and you're going to think, oh, oh no, did I miss the exit? You may still be in Texas, but you're going, oh no, did I miss the exit? I, um, oh man. You're also going to be, you have no idea how far it's going to be. You have no idea how long it's going to take. You don't know anything about the trip. You just know you're supposed to do that. That creates a really scary, uncertain, frightening feeling. Am I messing it up? Am I missing it? Am I, am, what am I supposed to be doing now? That constant feeling going on. But I want you to imagine that I did it this way. Let's say that I said, I'm still not going to give you a distance or a time. What if I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to head east. And, and in a little while, you're going to come to a city with a bunch of concrete and boats. Now, the boats, don't, again, don't put pictures up yet. And the boats, the boats, a lot of the boats are going to be on dry land. I know that makes no sense. But the boats, a lot of the boats are going to be on dry land. And you're going to be in a city with a bunch of those. And you're going to go through a bunch of overpasses and that kind of stuff. Really nice concrete. But as soon as you leave that city, the road is going to get really bad. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to feel like you're on a bridge the whole time. You're driving across, thump, 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 across the whole state. It's going to feel like that. And you're going to go across a lot of bridges, okay? You're going to go across bridges. And there's going to be a big bridge, just so you'll know. And you're going to go across lots of bridges. And as you go across bridges, you're going to, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, I wonder if this is the bridge he means. Maybe this is, a, this is a big bridge. Maybe he means this bridge. I wonder what bridge he means. If you're asking yourself, I wonder if this is the bridge he means, then it isn't. When you come to the bridge, I mean, you'll know it. Oh, oh, this bridge. This is the one he meant. The, the giant post-apocalyptic steel girder monstrosity, right? You're, oh, this bridge, okay? And then you're going to go into a new state, and, and in this state, the roads are exactly the opposite. They're amazing. They have these huge over... Like, when you drive through, there's like trees and parks between the two roads, and it's, it's amazing. You're going to love driving. But don't speed there, by the way. Don't, don't speed in this state. Um, and then you're going, to come to a, you're going to come to another state line, and there's this really nice um, like rest stop over to the side. Stop, get a free Coke. They'll give you something, and then learn a little bit more, and then go a little bit further. A little bit further. You've got to go, you still got to go a little further, but you'll start seeing signs for Tuscaloosa, and then you take that. Now, notice I still never gave you any distance or any time. How are you feeling about this trip? You're much more confident. And here's what's going to happen, though. As you're driving, so anybody ever driven through Oklahoma? What is with Oklahoma and not putting street signs? Have you ever noticed that? You drive for miles and hours and hours, and they won't tell you what road you're on. You get on the wrong road. I mean, you, you leave the state before you find out you're on the wrong road. And Texas is like every 200 yards. This is the road you're, you're still on. They know us, right? It's like, no, no, you're still on I-20. You're good. You're good. So, so that's it. But, but, and so he, I've given you no, no other exit. But, that. but here's how this works. So now we can start doing it. So you, you, you head east, and you come to Shreveport, and you go, oh, look, there are boats on dry land. That's what he said would happen. And you've been driving a little, you know, a little while, and you're starting to worry, like, I've not come to the city with boats on dry land. And then you do, and you go, oh, he said there would be boats on dry land. And then you go on to the, you get past the city, and you go onto the road. And, and for the next few hours, you're going, thump, thump, thump. And every, even though it annoys you, it's also comforting, like, he, he said it would be like this, right? And you go across a bridge, and you go, I wonder if this is the bridge he means, this, could, this is a pretty big bridge. There's lots of cars on this bridge. And you go on other bridges. And you go, I wonder if this is the bridge he means. Man, these are some just pretty big bridges. Maybe this is the bridge he means. And then you come to the Mississippi River Bridge. And you go, oh, that's the bridge he meant. 
Now, okay, good. And you know you're on the right track. And, and then you drive through Mississippi. And as you drive through Mississippi, it looks like this all the way through. Again, don't speed. The cops hide behind those trees. And then you go across the Alabama state line. And right there on the right is this really nice roadside center. And they'll give you a free Coke. And, and you go a little further and you come to the second exit into Northport and Tuscaloosa. And you're there. But, but notice what's going to happen along the way is you're, you're going to start feeling, ner- oh, are we still on the right track? Uh-oh, are we, uh, I'm getting a little nervous about this. I'm not. And then something will happen and you go, oh, yeah, he said this. See, that's, ladies and gentlemen, what prophecy is meant to do for us. We may not always know what it's going to look like till it comes. In fact, normally we don't. Think about how hard the Jews were studying to be prepared for the Messiah and they completely missed him. But looking back or in the moment, they can see like, oh, look at, the, look at all this fulfilled prophecy. Oh, that's what this was. It's not necessarily always going to help us foretell the future, but it reminds us when we hit the future, we suddenly remember this never spun out of his control. He knew about this. He said this would happen. Now, sometimes that scares us because we know kind of what, what probably comes after that or after that or after that. But at the same time, we're not ever going to find confidence in saying, oh, uh, now I, if you're trying to find confidence in your ability to predict the future or even understand prophecy, you're always going to be scared. But if you remember that the purpose of prophecy is to remind you that God knew what he was doing and he knew what was coming and he's always known and he told you way in advance, that's its purpose is so that when we hit something, I, I remember when I, in, in the early 90s and late 80s when people were talking about, you know, the, the Battle of Armageddon was a, was a popular... That was when, you know, 88 Reasons Why Christ Was Going to Return in 88. Y'all remember that one? Sold a lot. Um, as we talk, I'll probably reference the book that I have over my office. It's 99 Reasons Why No One Knows When Jesus Is Coming Back. It's a, I think it was a response book. But the, um, uh, the, the, as, we, as we move forward, we are reminded God, God knows. And he always knew. And so I remember there was, this, there was this, one of the things that I remember a commentator talking about was, as he was like, as I understand Ezekiel 38 and some of those passages, you literally would have to have like the Western world and Saudi Arabia fighting alongside one another in defense of Israel, and there's no way that would ever happen. Saudi Arabia would never join with the Western world to defend Israel. And then we had the Persian Gulf conflict, and Saudi Arabia sided with the Western world to defend Israel, and it, um, all those people were like, hey, here, here it is. I mean, they, they, they thought we were done. It was like, this is a fulfilled prophecy that this can happen. And we're all stunned by it. And what we should be saying is realizing that God's going, well, maybe not. I mean, I told you that would happen, right? I mean, I told you that could happen. And it's going to happen again. But now you know it can happen. So chill. It's exactly the opposite response that we normally have to prophecy, which is to be scared. God is saying the purpose, I believe, of us is to say, no, no, I, I got this. Don't, don't be afraid. Trust in the Father and trust also in me. God is God. He still is. He's totally sovereign. None of this catches him off guard. Now, there's a couple of things important application real quick about that. One is, men, as you're trying to lead your family, think of how ridiculous it is that we don't look we don't ask that god for wisdom and insight on how to lead our family when he knows he knows what's coming he knows what it's about and yet the hardest thing for so many of us is to pray with our wife or to pray with our family or to ask for god to guide us or lead us or or step by step and that's so we are taking the greatest resource of all time the greatest source of understanding and wisdom for how everything works 
and we're ignoring it. So one, let me make that application for us. We need to be seeking God's will and seeking his wisdom and asking him to give us the wisdom he promises to give when we ask. So that's one. We don't want to miss that. Um, here's one of the points. God, in, in the, the prophet Isaiah um, makes this point, God mocks other gods in Isaiah. In Isaiah 41, let them bring them and tell us what's to happen. He's talking about idols and false gods and pagan gods. He's like, oh, well, bring, in, bring your other gods. Bring in your idols and your pagan gods. Tell us what's to happen. Just tell us the former things. Tell us the things that have happened before, what they are, <coughs> that we can consider them. That would be good. Um, or that we may know the outcome, to declare the things that come after. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination to he who chooses you. When we look to other sources for the wisdom that God offers us, ungodly sources, we, we kind of look foolish. And that's the point he's making here. When you look to the pagan whatever, look to man, look to what, even human wisdom or whatever, and say, like, now that's going to help God. Like, God's saying, yeah, good luck with that. We're not very good prognosticators, only he fully knows. So the role of prophecy is motivated to work urgently, to serve each other passionately. That's what it should be about. In fact, let me, let me give you this picture of urgency. Here is one thing that I think prophecy should motivate us with. Now, last week in teaching a sermon on suicide, I referenced the World Trade Center. I'm going to reference it again, but for a totally different analogy this time. So a totally different way of thinking about it. Um, this is a question that um, an evangelist asked in conversation with me at one point, said, he was saying, I want you to imagine, so, so those of you who remember back, remember back the day of the World Trade Center's collapsing, being hit by airplanes and collapsing. He says, I want you to imagine that we send you back in time and, and send you to you know, the 80-something floor at about 8 a.m. on 9-11. And you know what you know. What would you be doing? What would you do? Asking. What's that? Trying to get everybody out, Right? You'd run from office to office. Hey, we got to get out. I mean, listen, guys, we've got minutes, minutes before we're all dead. We got to get out of here. So imagine all the people who are saying, no, no, I, got, I mean, why? What are you talking about? It's a normal day. There's nothing going on here. I got some phone calls to make. I got some emails. In fact, I, I read a book called The Unthinkable, which was a meta-analysis of how people handle um, crises like that. The average amount of time that it took for people to leave their desk after the World Trade Center was hit was six and a half minutes. The average person answered a few more emails, made a couple more phone calls, grabbed a book or two, picked up their briefcase. Going downstairs, which the experts had predicted would take 30 seconds per flight, took more like a minute and a half per flight of stairs because no one was in a hurry. There was no sense of urgency even after and there certainly wasn't before. If you went in and were like, hey, we got, listen, any minute now. We got to get down below this flight by this time. We got to hurry. And imagine how you would deal with the people who would say like, yeah, you're crazy. We're not, we're not listening to you. That is something I think eschatological thinking, prophetic thinking, knowing that what God is saying should, should create in us is a sense of urgency. At some point, he's coming back and he's calling everybody out of the pool and that's when judgment happens. And there needs to be a search of urgency for that because it could happen at any time. And we know that. We know this could happen. So prophetic 
prophecy is one meant to calm us. God is still sovereign. None of this is going to spin out of his hand. At the same time, it's meant to create a sense of urgency for us. But not everyone knows this. We've got to, we've got to tell people, we've got to warn people, let be encouraged by that. Make sure the people in our family know. So these are, these are two different, and they're kind of opposite, but they come from, so our urgency still comes from a place of peace. God is still God, and he always will be. But we need to be looking to him to guide us, to guide our families. So remember these concepts, these ideas, as we look at the Olivet Discourse starting next week. Jesus had come in on Sunday from Jericho. Um, a large crowd had followed him in. This is the Sunday before the crucifixion that week. So he'd come in on Sunday from Jericho with a large crowd that had honored him as the son of David. Remember that, the Hosanna, Hosanna. At the end of one of the days during that last week, and it's hard to tell which day for sure, it may have been Monday or Tuesday, but Jesus was leaving the temple in the evening. He had just chased off the money changers and stuff. And as they walked out, and by the way, Jesus is leaving the temple. In this story, Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time. Um, he would not set foot in it again. Don't know if he knew that or not, but he walked out for the last time. As they walked away, of course, the disciples pointed out the wonder of the temple. Do you have those? Um, do we have a, a picture? There we go. Now, that's what it would have looked like now. That's what it looks like now. That's the, the dome of the rock. It's not a mosque. It is a, 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 allegedly a Muslim holy site. Um, it was kind of added in later, to be honest, but it kind of a Muslim holy site. And that's the Temple Mount, that big wall. Um, you can, if you go to Israel, you can also see, if you pull that up, this is actually a model of, this is what it would have looked like, um, except you can't possibly do it justice. The temple was massive. It was a wonder of the world. The Romans, who knew how to build big things, took vacations to Jerusalem to see this temple. Um, covered with gold. When it did fall, the gold prices around the world collapsed because so much gold was flooded into the system when the Romans stole all the gold out of it, that it was that brilliant and that phenomenal and that opulent. And as they walk away, of course, you can just imagine the disciples, proud Jews, turning and saying, man, look at that. Look at that bill. Isn't that just amazing, Jesus? I mean, you got to admit, that's pretty amazing. And Jesus replies in Matthew 24 too, you see these, do you not? Truly, I tell you, there will not be one left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. They walked through the valley of Kidron and up the hillside to the other side toward Bethany. At some point, he sat down and the disciples wanted to, de to debrief his little statement. Can you imagine, by the way? How's that for dropping a, like an, an anchor on the conversation? As they're going like, look at this. I mean, they're all Galilee hicks, right? I Man, it's like East Texas going to New York. Like, <laughs> Who knew buildings got so big? You go to imagine you're in Washington, D.C., and you get a chance to walk down, you know, walk with Trump down in front of the White House or something like that, and you're going, these are amazing buildings. And everyone's talking about it. Look at that's just, and you've got the guides with you, and they're all stunned. Can you imagine how it would change the conversation if Trump said, oh, yeah, these are all going to get leveled? They're all coming down. Every stone. I mean, everyone would kind of stay like, what, what does he mean? Is he going to do it? Like, is putting in a new apartment high-rise right here? Like, what is, Trump, Trump, D.C.? This is a, like, I mean, it would stop everything. Everyone would just be kind of walking in silence going, what? They get to the other side of the hill, 
And finally, one of them has the guts to say, um, so when is this going to happen? When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? So what we're going to look for in Matthew 24 and into 25 is Jesus answering these two questions in response to his kind of cryptic doom and gloom statement as they're walking away, and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see the day coming when none of these will be there anymore. So we're going to study through that, and that will maybe help us understand. But So my encouragement to you today as, you, as we look at this and as we study this, and we're going to hear about all kinds of tragic, awful things. But as we do, remember, when we see them as Christians, our response is to say, yep, God's sovereign. He knew this was coming. And yet there's also a, he's coming, so we need to get to work. Let both of those things kind of flood us as we engage with people at the restaurant today, with one another today, in life groups, wherever. So, good stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have your word to study. And I, I thank you that we um, have the opportunity to learn and grow, that our lives can be changed by the power of your word. Lord, I, I do pray that you would give us comfort. Not the complacency, lazy kind of comfort, but the comfort of someone who knows that they're on the winning team. God, the comfort that somehow we know that the final score is going to end with your son being victorious, no matter how far behind sometimes we look in our culture right now. In the end, um, he will declare himself victorious, and, and you will, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would give us great comfort in that, and yet at the same time, Lord, that that comfort would be translated into the urgency to make sure those around us, especially those we know, those we love, but every single human being would be, give, be able to experience that same comfort because they have been rescued by the power of your Son through the sanctifying work of your Spirit according to your perfect foreknowledge. Thank you, Father, that that is how we are saved. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Guide us the rest of this day that this would not just leave our minds today, but that this would impact us knowing this truth. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.